Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe from spitandkitchen.com for potato and broccolini frittata. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't require a whole lot of advanced planning to make for dinner. I mean, thank goodness. So here's the recipe, potato and broccolini frittata. This is adapted barely from easy vegetarian one-pot meals via... Leite's Culinaria, and that's L-E-I-T-E apostrophe S. Even if I know that the thinner ones are more traditional, I like a frittata, especially a dinner version, to have a little bulk, and this perfectly fit the bill. And leftover slices make a pretty great sandwich filling the next day, something I saw frequently in Rome. The recipe calls for broccolini, a variety of broccoli with thinner, longer stalks, and smaller florets that keeps a dark, rich green color after it's cooked. However, I think that any number of green vegetables would work here, either standard broccoli florets or sauteed kale, etc. What I wouldn't skimp on is the Parmesan. I know there's a lot. In fact, if you must, skip the half that goes inside the frittata, but don't skip the broiled part. That's the salty, crunchy, frico finish and Monday night dinners would be so much more dull without it. You'll need 8 to 10 small waxy potatoes, about 1 ounce each, scrubbed and quartered, 1 cup of vegetable or another broth, just use salted water if you don't have it around, 1 quarter cup of olive oil, 8 ounces, usually one bundle of broccolini, trimmed and halved lengthwise or chopped into 1 inch pieces, one small red or white onion, thinly sliced, eight large eggs, one cup, that's about three to three and a half ounces of grated Parmesan cheese, salt, and freshly ground black pepper to taste. Place the potatoes and broth in a large oven-proof frying pan, ideally one that is 12 inches. Bring to a boil and simmer for 10 minutes turning the potatoes often until almost all of the stock has been absorbed and the potatoes are tender. Add olive oil, broccolini, and onion to the potatoes in the frying pan and cook with over medium heat for one minute, turning frequently just to get everything coated with oil. Then reduce the heat to medium low and cover the pan, 
cooking for three to four more minutes or until the broccolini has become mostly tender. Heat your broiler, beat eggs with half the parmesan, salt and pepper, and pour it over the vegetables in the frying pan. Cover and cook over medium or medium low if yours seems to be browning too quickly until the eggs are mostly set. Sprinkle the remaining parmesan over the frittata and run the whole pan under the broiler until the top is bronzed and the eggs are just set throughout approximately five minutes, but this could vary due to how robust your broiler is. Mine is terrible and it took longer. Let cool slightly before slicing into wedges or squares. Next, we're going to have a recipe for roasted squash and tofu with ginger. This is beautiful. This roasted squash has kind of takes on a red hue and it's these curved hues of squash. It just looks beautiful. I didn't mean to disappear on you. I intended to start the year with soup, as I always do. I made a lovely but not lovely enough winter minestrone and then a red lentil situation but neither really seemed spotlight worthy and it can be hard sometimes, but I really don't want to publish anything here that I don't want to sing from the rooftops about. All of our time is worth more than that. While I was debating my next soup move, my friend texted and said, can you believe the wedding is in two weeks away? And I bolted straight up in bed because, well, no, I couldn't believe it at all. I mean, I knew I told her I'd make her wedding cake. We discussed the head count and flavors they liked, I had a loose idea of it in my mind and looked forward to really getting started on it in a couple of weeks. And needless to say, this is where the rest of January went, and I'm going to tell you about it next week. It's going through some rigorous retesting and is going to be worth the wait because it's probably one of the most delicious cakes I have ever made. But still, let's never go on a break again. The other kind of thing you miss very much when you're three KitchenAid bowls deep in buttercream is vegetables especially those coated in salt, acid, and heat. And I received the wonderful Diana Henry's, she's of the bird in hand and how to eat a peach fame for the highly cookable recipes, and most recent cookbook called From the Oven to the Table, full of sheet panish meals last fall. And then my favorite thing happened. I immediately bookmarked four dishes. This is what we always hope will that we're instantly going to shake off a cooking rut that we may not even have realized we were in at the suggestion of something new. I made the salsiccia con patate e pomodoro, wonderful, melting baked onions. I think I undercooked them, but the potential is definitely there. Toad in the hole with leeks and cheddar and a Persian spiced spatch cooked chicken. And now this. This is fantastic. I have never combined tofu and winter squash before, but it was my loss. Both are coated with a soy sauce, honey ginger mixture, plus chili flakes to taste and roasted halfway. And then you spoon a lot of garlic oil over it so it gets toasty in the second half of cooking, but doesn't burn. When it comes out of the oven, you scatter it with a threefer of sesame seeds, scallions, and lime juice and you guys, my 10-year-old asked for leftovers of this in his lunchbox today. I cannot offer a dish any higher accolades than that. Well, technically, if my much pickier 4-year-old asked for it, I'd probably have to be carried out on a stretcher. But for our own sanity, we don't use 4-year-olds who routinely reject cookies as a yardstick for what is delicious. Here's the recipe. 
roasted squash, and tofu with ginger and garlic. This serves two to four, takes 45 minutes. The source, Diana Henry's From the Oven to the Table. The book focuses on what we call sheet pan meals, but large sheet pans aren't as much of a thing across the pond. But roasting dishes, a little smaller, are. Nevertheless, I tried to squeeze this onto one large half sheet pan versus the two baking dishes she suggests in the book. And my tofu didn't come out very crisp. If this doesn't bother you, then squeeze away. Please read. To ensure that this recipe is gluten-free, use soy sauce or tamari labeled clearly as gluten-free. To make this dish vegan, use sugar or another sweetener instead of honey. For this recipe, you'll need 14-ounce package of extra-firm tofu, 2 pounds of winter squash, such as kabocha or acorn, 3 tablespoons honey or brown sugar, 1 third cup of soy sauce, one half to two teaspoons of crushed red pepper flakes or to taste, one inch piece of fresh ginger peeled and finely grated, seven tablespoons of vegetable or peanut oil divided, kosher salt and freshly ground black pepper, six garlic cloves very thinly sliced, one tablespoon of toasted sesame seeds, two scallions trimmed and thinly sliced on the diagonal and the juice of half a lime. Drain your tofu and remove as much water as you can. There are two ways, easy ways to ensure that your tofu gets as crisp as possible, but the first requires advanced planning. The first is one that a dear reader has been pressing, get it, for us to try for years. You can freeze it. You can freeze your tofu as soon as you get it home, still in the package or already drained. And once defrosted, it easily shakes off all its water. You'll still want to blot it though, and it even has a lovely texture. But this requires a little more planning. The second is a little faster, but some say less effective. Place your block on a few layers of paper towels with more towels over it, and even a tray or plate on top to weight it, and set aside for five minutes or until it's needed. Next, you're gonna heat your oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and cover one to two baking sheets with parchment paper for easy cleanup. Prepare tofu and vegetables. You're going to cut the tofu into one half inch slices and then in half again. Have you, and seed your squash. I like to remove the seeds with a metal cup or I'm sorry metal soup spoon which makes it much easier to get it clean. Cut the squash into one half to three quarter inch thick wedges and if you're using two pans, you can arrange the squash on one and the tofu on another. If you're using one, try to puzzle them together as I do above, but it'll be a little bit more snug. In a small bowl, whisk together the honey or sugar, soy sauce, pepper flakes to taste, ginger, and four tablespoons of the oil. If you're using two pans, pour two-thirds of the marinade over the squash and one-third over the tofu and turn each slice of squash over gently to coat it on both sides. If you're using only one tray, use all the marinade, coating the squash and tofu together. In all cases, season the squash and tofu with salt and pepper. Next, you're gonna roast it for 15 minutes, then using a thin metal spatula, turn the squash and tofu chunks over. In a small bowl, combine the remaining three tablespoons of oil with the garlic 
and spoon this all over the squash and tofu. Return the pans to the oven and roast until the tofu is dark and the squash is completely tender. It'll be about 10 to 15 more minutes. As far as serving, you can serve it directly from the pan or pans or arrange it on a serving plate. Scatter with sesame seeds and scallions and then squeeze the lime juice over. Yum! Next we're going to have some look, look, love, looking lovely, super sweet, but really yummy desserts slash theoretically you could have it for breakfast on the German pancakes. <laughs> Back when I was still getting daily, are you okay and do you need anything? Phone calls from my mother after my little rumble with the stairs. She told me one more that she'd made, once more, that she'd made German pancakes for breakfast. Oh, you remember them, don't you? I made them once in a while when you were growing up. Well, no, I don't. Do your parents ever do this? Insist that you ate something often? It was practically a staple, mind you, and it's news to you? I have no recollection of these puffy, curly, easy-as-sin goodies, but I won't be forgetting them anytime soon. They taste like thick, winding crepes with just a hint of sweetness. The recipe suggests you serve them with butter, powdered sugar, and lemon wedges. Mom suggests her favorite, raspberry syrup, but Alex and I are more the Vermont pure maple and fresh berries type. The recipe, by the way, Mom says she got from one of those inserts that came with her at least 30-year-old blender, completely crushing my romanticized notions of this being something her parents had brought over from, quote, the old country, end quote. Sigh. Of course, it suggests you make this in a blender. My hand mixer worked just fine, as I am sure would a whisk. It takes about 2.5 minutes to assemble, 30 minutes to bake, and four, maybe five minutes to eat, though it will take restraint to even stretch it out that long. Loopy breakfast goodness does not get any better than this. Here's the recipe for German pancakes from my mom's old blender cookbook. Note, there's a newer, easier, and more dramatic puffy pancake on the site, Extra Billowy Dutch Baby Pancake, and there's a link at smittenkitchen.com. This one yields two 9-inch pancakes. You'll need two tablespoons of soft butter, four eggs, one tablespoon of sugar, one half teaspoon of salt, two-thirds cup flour, sifted, two-thirds cup milk. You're going to heat your oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, butter two nine-inch cake pans generously with the softened butter, put eggs in the blender container, cover and process at stir until it's light yellow in color, push the mix button and then remove the cover and add the remaining ingredients and process until smooth. Pour into prepared pans and bake for 20 minutes. Then reduce the heat to 350 degrees Fahrenheit and bake for 10 minutes more. Slide onto hot plates. Serve with lemon slices, powdered sugar and butter if you follow recipes to the letter, or raspberry syrup if you're my mom, or maple syrup and fresh berries if you're us. Yum! We're going to continue this sweet path here with a recipe for carrot cake with coconut and dates. I realize that sharing a new recipe for a carrot cake the day after Easter is about as useful as a new latke recipe the day after Hanukkah ends, or a perfect bouche de Noël on December 26th. 
I'd intended to share this a week ago, and I was patting myself on the back for my own cleverness, the first sign that things are going to head south. What could be more perfect for a week that contained both Easter and Passover, while also saving so many people the work of having to adapt a gluten or dairy full cake to not include them? Nothing. But I was unraveled by dual forces. First, some confusion about whether or not baking powder, a leavener, is allowed on Passover, a holiday that prohibits leavened breads. It turns out that it is. And also by our own Seder preparations, we had 16 people here on Wednesday night. I'm criminally bad at outsourcing, so I cooked for 3.5 days straight. And that brings us up to today. A lovely thing about having a 16-year-old for a cooking blog, however, is that even poorly timed arrivals tend to find their rightful place in the archives. When you come looking for a flourless carrot cake, be it today, next week, or next April holiday season, this will be here seemingly right on time. So let's talk about this cake. If you've got my most recent cookbook, Smitten Kitchen Keepers, and oh, I'm obviously biased, but I think you'll love it, you might know that I prefer carrot cake to spotlight carrots most of all. The book's carrot cake with brown butter and no clutter is the most straightforward I've made. Yet this recipe is full of co-stars, almond flour and coconut and dates. What happened, Deb? It might just be the gluten-free of it all, but I like this cake is hearty and full of textures. It absolutely works here and makes it better. Am I evolving? Will I soon begin to embrace beets, bucatini, and deadlines? <laughs> Whew! This is a lot to consider. What's not is whether or not you need this cake in your repertoire. You unquestionably do. Here's a few notes. Dairy. This cake base is dairy-free. The cream cheese frosting shown is not, but I find non-dairy cream cheeses to be surprisingly excellent, and they'll work as well here. It will just be a little bit softer. As far as cream cheese, if you're using non-dairy cream cheese, no need to soften it before making the frosting. Cold from the fridge is fine. With dairy cream cheese, cold and cut into chunks is also fine for the food processor or stand mixer. But for a hand mixer, you will likely find it easier to use once it's at room temperature. And please weigh your ingredients. I beg you to use a scale for this recipe. While scales are great for most recipes, they take on a whole extra level of essentialness when gluten-free baking. Ingredients like grated carrots, almond flour, coconut, and diced fruit are wildly inconsistent to measure in cups since no two will ever be the same. Since they're basically all the cake is, plus eggs, it can and will th throw things off. I've done my best to verify each weight in cups and describe how the cup is measured, if it's packed or loose, etc. But please keep in mind that you could press almond flour very firmly in a cup and fit almost two cups in a one cup measure. P.S. on the scales, and she has a link to the scales she uses. I buy scales that have good reviews, but also try not to spend too much because I rarely find any that work consistently for more than five years. It's not unusual for restaurant kitchens to replace them yearly. As far as decorating, I am borderline obsessed with finding unfussy ways for us to decorate cookies and cakes, and today's iteration is squiggles from a sandwich bag with a corner snipped off. 
No advanced pastry pastrying skills required. I love these piled telephone cord curls. And the source, I bookmarked this from Donna Hay many years ago, but I've tinkered a lot to get it right for me with the volume, pan size, cooking time, and proportion of almonds, coconut, and carrots, jettisoning, jettisoning the raisins. Still, isn't it always nice to talk about inspiration? Magic rarely happens in a vacuum. Here's the recipe for carrot cake with coconut and dates. For the cake, you're going to need four large eggs, one cup or 215 grams of brown sugar, light or dark, 12 ounces or 340 grams of grated carrots, or 2.75 cups, gently packed. Start with more, about 15 ounces, to account for trimming and peeling. You're going to need three cups or 340 grams of almond flour or almond meal. Cups were scooped and then leveled. Heaped one half cup or 45 grams of finely shredded unsweetened coconut. One cup or 155 grams of diced pitted dates. One and a half teaspoons of kosher salt, diamond brand. Use one teaspoon of other brands. One and a half teaspoon of ground cinnamon one teaspoon of ground ginger, one and a half teaspoons of baking powder, one third cup or 75 grams of melted coconut oil, olive oil, or a neutral oil, one teaspoon of vanilla extract. For the frosting, you need one cup, which is eight ounces or 225 grams of non-dairy or regular cream cheese, two tablespoons or 30 grams of sour cream or plain yogurt, one half cup of light brown sugar, one half teaspoon of vanilla bean paste, replace with additional extract if you don't have it, one half teaspoon of vanilla ex extract. To make the cake, you're going to heat your oven to 325 degrees Fahrenheit and coat a nine inch round or eight inch square cake pan with nonstick spray and line the bottom with parchment paper and set aside. You place the eggs in one cup of brown sugar in the bowl of an electric mixer and whisk at medium-high speed for eight minutes or until thick and doubled in volume. Combine the remaining ingredients, carrots, almond, flour, coconut, dates, salt, spices, baking powder, oil, and vanilla in a large bowl, tossing to combine. Fold the carrot mixture into the beaten egg mixture, trying to deflate the eggs as little as possible and spoon the mixture into your prepared cake pan. Smooth the top of the cake so that it's level. You're going to bake it for 50 to 60 minutes, but please note, a toothpick inserted into the center will come out clean of the batter as early as 35 to 40 minutes, but it will not be baked enough, i.e. the crumb might be damp or might even seem a little underbaked in the center, unless you take it another 10 to 15 minutes. The cake is forgiving of what you might think is overbaking, even if the sides seem dark. Remove the cake from the oven immediately and run a knife around the cake to loosen anywhere that it might be stuck. Let cool for 15 minutes in a pan on a rack and then flip it out onto a baking wrap. Peel off the parchment and let the cake cool right side up until it's room temperature. I usually hurry this along either outside on a cold day or in the fridge. To make the frosting in a stand mixer or a food processor with a hand mixer, you're going to beat or blend the cream cheese, sugar, sour cream, and vanilla paste and extract until creamy and light. 
To frost and decorate, you're going to spread two-thirds of the frosting on a cooled cake, just eyeball it, and spread it in a thin, smooth layer. And then you're going to place the remaining frosting in a Ziploc bag and snip the corner off. Pipe overlap, overlapping squiggles around the cake until you're out of frosting. As far as doing ahead, keep the leftover cake in the fridge. It keeps without seeming dry, hooray, for five to six days. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.